Welcome to the VIP Jazzwall Report. Today we talk about the historical conflict between Armenia and Turkey. But before we begin, let me ask you this. In cases of historical conflict, who would you rather believe, the historians or the politicians? How is reconciliation possible when words come in the way? Should the acts of our fathers impact the future of our children? And can time heal a broken relationship? Our guest today is the notable Peter Balakian, who's a professor at Colgate University and the author of nine books, notably the national bestseller called The Burning Tigress. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you. Good to be with you. For the benefit of our listeners, give us a brief overview of the conflict between the Turks and the Armenians. You know, I suppose it's going back to the late 19th century, mm-hmm. uh, we focus on Armenians being the largest Christian minority population inside of Ottoman Turkey. Uh, asking for change, uh, pushing for reform, um, asking for the status that they were accorded as infidels. And this was true of non-Muslims in, the, in Ottoman Turkey in the late 19th century. Uh, infidels had less rights and less enfranchisement and so forth in the Ottoman system, and Armenians began asking for change and reform. As they asked for change and reform, they were met with wholesale violence, first by the Sultan, Abdul Hamid II, in the late 19th century, and then wholesale genocide. Um, that happened behind the cover of World War One, during what? which time close to a million and a half Armenians were wiped out, were exterminated, were mass-killed on their own historic lands of 2,500 years. And before it was over, two-thirds of the Armenian population, of about 2.2 to 2.5 million, uh, were eradicated, and Armenians virtually ceased to exist on a historic territory they'd existed on for, as I mentioned, 2,500 years. Well, Peter, what was the definition of an infidel at the time? Because you used that word. Yeah, and this was actually a, 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 a legal term, and it, it was used to designate non-Muslims, uh, Jews and Christians, and I would note the other dominant Christian um, uh, cultures, groups of, uh, of Turkey at the time were the Greeks and the Assyrians. And um, being non-Muslim, you were not entitled to, to equal rights in Islamic courts of law, you were not allowed in the military, you were not allowed in the civil service of the government, uh, you weren't allowed to own weapons, uh, to ride horses, and uh, you were taxed in a very heavy way. So there's a whole infrastructure of discrimination and exclusion, and it, it, it really created a very lopsided world, uh, one in which Christian minorities and Jewish minorities were um, were in constant danger and risk. They were in danger and risk for their lives often, too. I, I, I would add, too, that women were raped and abducted without, without any accountability. You know, there, there were no court cases. There were no trials. If, if Christian women disappeared, that, that was the way life was. So it was, it was a harsh situation. And Armenians were the, the, were the ethnic group who began to push the political envelope asking for change. Did America at that time play any role in this? You know, when the first massacre started happening, uh, as I mentioned, under the Sultan in the 1890s, mm-hmm. um, there, there was enormous grassroots um, uh, relief efforts and even some rescue efforts in the, from, from the U.S. But, and, and this was also true during the period of the genocide between 1915 and 19. 19- 
say, 17, 1918. But there was never any government intervention. That is, the, you know, the State Department and, and the White House never authorized uh, formal military or other sorts of political interventions. So you have the situation where there's a lot of grassroots outpouring of money for relief and uh, and even even rescue in certain cases, but nothing from the government. You know, I spent some time studying the Turkish-Armenian conflict, and I think the first thing that struck me was the war of words between the two sides. And, you know, the words used are genocide, massacre, in some cases atrocities. Both sides know something happened, but both sides can't seem to agree on how to describe it. Um, using the G word, the genocide, seems to be such a big issue. Where does the word come from? Well, the word was um, developed and coined by the great uh, Polish legal scholar, uh, a Polish Jew named Raphael Lemkin. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it came into law in the, in the famous 1948 UN Genocide Convention, in which genocide is defined as killing members of a group and causing mental harm to members of the group, um, you know, preventing births within the group, abducting children from the group. So it's the idea that Lemkin came up with the idea is that members of unprotected groups, ethnic groups and religious groups, needed to be protected by international law, especially when their own states went after them, as in the case, of course, of the Nazis and the Jews in Europe, or the Hutu and the Tutsi in Rwanda, and the Armenians and the Turks inside of Turkey. So so the law develops... Uh, in, in the 1940s, and Lemkin is the person who coined the term Armenian Genocide. I think it's important for our, our listeners to know that. Uh, he was obsessed with the Armenian case as a primary example of what he meant by genocide. And, you know, what's interesting about this, as you're noting, this war of words idea, is that it's only in Turkey that the word genocide is taboo and denied. Everywhere else in the world it is used. It is the consensus of the body of scholars worldwide who study genocide, that the Armenian genocide, you know, is one of the three unambiguous cases of genocide in the 20th century, along with the Tutsis of Rwanda and the Jews of Europe. So I think this is a problem for Turkey and their inability to come to terms with their own historical past. Well, how does Turkey choose to define this event? Everything that you read and hear coming out of the Turkish state is evasion and falsification. There is no language they have ever employed that suggests there is any moral accountability for the extermination of more than a million people and the eradication of a 2,500-year-old civilization. So the idea in Turkey has been to blame the victims, um, and to create rhetoric that is evasive. Oh, it was wartime. There was famine. Millions of Turks died during World War One. Uh, and if massacres happened, they happened at the local level. It was nothing the Turkish state intended. Th- these are the stock rhetorical gestures you will hear over the last 90 years. And sadly, there has been no improvement on that. And, and until there is, uh, I think, some... Uh, real uh, language of accountability, and I think this is what is so uh, disturbing, not only to the Armenian community, but to the human rights community and to the genocide studies community, the sense of 
scoffing at all accountability so that crimes of genocide can be committed with impunity. I mean, this is what the Turkish state w- w- is, is, is making its, uh, I think, orientation say. So is using, say, the, the G word, does it have political implication? Does it have international implication? Uh, yes, I think it does. And, and here we go back to Raphael Lemkin. It was Lemkin, of course, who, who made the word genocide have the kind of legal weight that it, it has. Um, and, of course, now as a, as a concept of crime in international law, it's punishable. It's in the U.N. Convention. And, it, it, in fact, it has a kind of ultimate weight. Um, uh, there are, of course, other crimes against humanity and human rights crimes, and, and they, they also deserve to have, you know, moral accountability. But Lemkin gave genocide the, ult- the ultimate um, legal and, and ethical uh, gravitas. Well, as we go forward into time, uh, this issue is now going, getting to be a century old. Um, my question is, do you think it's losing its significance because, you know, we have other issues that have just as much weight, I mean, terrorism, um, global financial crisis, so much is happening in the current affairs of the world today. What are your reasons to keep this issue alive? You know, you're certainly right in noting, God, we're living in a a planetary cauldron of such such violence. It's it's frightening, and and there's so many pressing issues. Why should we care about uh, you know a human rights atrocity, a genocide that happened almost 100 years ago? And I I would I would respond you know by noting first that <clears throat> the Armenian genocide is a really groundbreaking event in in modern history because it's the first time genocide happened. Um, uh, in a modern form, you know, but with the use of state apparatus and, and state ideology, military technology, communications. It, it, it was genocide done in a different way than pre-modern genocides, which tended to come out of colonial contexts. So historically, it's an important event, and it, it's now being recognized for how groundbreaking it was uh, and, and so forth. But secondly, what, what's so interesting is that you would think 98 years later mm-hmm. that this event would quietly dissolve. And yet, in the last decade, there has never been more coverage, and I mean headlines in the New York Times and the L.A. Times and the Wall Street Journal headlines about Armenian genocide resolutions and efforts to commemorate and Turkish denial, the assassination of the great Armenian Turkish journalist Harant Dink over the Armenian genocide issue in broad daylight in downtown Istanbul in 2007, the trial of Turkish Nobel laureate Orhan Pamuk because he acknowledged the Armenian genocide in a press interview. These things keep making headlines, and this is what's so amazing because it shows you that major human rights atrocities, in this case genocide, cannot be committed with impunity. And have the legacy be one of quiet, that the, 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 the pain, the wound, the ongoing anguish in the survivor communities and the deep concern in the human rights communities for the ethical meaning of all this won't go away. In fact, it becomes the, the greater the Turkish denial gets, the more outlandish 
that I think most of the outside world sees this, and it, it, it has become almost, since, in a strange way, sensational. I mean, very sadly, I, I wish it weren't so, but it reminds us of how deep human rights crimes go. But Peter, you said in the last decade it seems to have just mushroomed. Well, what's happened in the last decade? I think there has been a couple of things have happened, I think. First, there has been a very forceful um, blooming of extraordinary scholarship um, last decade, last two decades, shall we say, so that awareness, depth, and knowledge of understanding have happened in ways that I, I think, you know, have been groundbreaking. And some of this terrific scholarship has come from Turkish historians like Taner Akcam and Muge Gojuk and others. So this is this has created a, a deeper waves of, of, you know, awareness of teaching in the classroom and so forth. Secondly, I think that there has been what I, you know, might loosely call a worldwide sort of movement, if that's not too, I don't know, strong a term, but uh, at least orientation toward acknowledgement of past historical atrocities. I mean, you know, we've seen we've seen the Pope try his best to articulate, uh, you know, um, uh, apology about the, the Vatican's silence during the Holocaust. President Clinton went to Africa to make statements about slavery. Uh, we saw um, the Russian, the new Russian regime under Yeltsin, uh, you know, begin to acknowledge the, the atrocities of the Soviets against the czars family in 1917 and there's so many so many evidences of this that i i think that that there's more ethical interest in why this is important for cultures and governments for peace for for movement to better places on the planet so i, I think i think that's that's part of it too well in the present day on on the world stage how are armenia and turkey in terms of diplomatic relations Again, it's a tragedy that keeps unspooling the aftermath of this history. Turkey and Armenia have no diplomatic relations today. Turkey has blockaded the Armenian border. That's a border at the eastern frontier of Turkey and the western border of Armenia. Armenia, again, I, I would just note, is a small landlocked country in the southwest Caucasus in Transcaucasia. And um, I think Armenia, um, you know, was cut a very unfair deal after World War One, when it was to be awarded a larger piece of territory and a little piece of sea coast along the Black Sea. That did not happen in the end. So you have a landlocked Armenia blockaded by Turkey, in part over the issue of the recognition of the Armenian genocide, and in part over politics in the Caucasus that have to do with the uh, state of Karabakh, Nagorno-Karabakh, and its relationship to Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, that may be a, a longer history that there's not adequate time to pursue. Well, let's, let's move on to the reconciliation aspect, and, I, and I'm going to use this word ideal. In an ideal world, how would you envision reconciliation to take place? <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> I, I chuckle only because I, 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 you know, the ideal world is uh, always one that you imagine and 
never know how far in advance it could be. But, you know, I think one of the bottom lines is, and I, I hope this is both ideal and real, mm-hmm. is that the Turkish state needs to deal honestly with its past. And I think that the the honest reckoning with that past, the stopping the big lie syndrome, the frenetic need to keep inventing scenarios to evade the moral reality of this history will go will go a very long way. Um, I think it would it would thaw so much it would it would uh, commence a kind of uh, moral order to things. You know, I, I want to note that one of the things that the scholarly community on genocide denial notes is that the denial, the denial of genocide is the final stage of genocide because it seeks to demonize the victims and rehabilitate the perpetrators. And it's also been noted that this denial syndrome tends to leave the survivor community with a sense of, you know, a counterfeit universe, a, a completely morally false universe. And I, I think that to end this uh, syndrome of denial would help uh, create, restore some kind of just basic emotional and mental and social health between the two communities. I, I think the Turkish nation suffers under this cloud as well. Within, within the Turkish nation, are the sentiments of the people of Turkey in parallel with the leadership of Turkey regarding this issue? You know, I would say here that um, um, there is a, a, a variety of perspectives on the Armenian genocide inside of Turkey. And What's the majority? Every year there is a growing um, number of people, a, a larger and larger segment of, of that population of some 60 million people mm-hmm. who are beginning to understand, wow, this happened, um, and we need to deal with it. And I think that you know, among certain large minority groups inside of Turkey, like the Kurds and the Alawi and others, there is an acknowledgement of what happened, the truth of what happened in 1915. Um, the scholarly community, some of it has come a long way. Um, this year, uh, the press noted that there were more commemorations of the Armenian genocide in Turkey than ever before. Now, that may mean three or four places in the country, but, you know, that's a big step forward. Well, that is a big uh, big step forward because it seems for the past three years Turkey has been holding the Armenian massacre observation in the center of Istanbul, and I find that quite ironic because the observations were held at the Taksim Square in Istanbul. Which was that's where the Armenian intellectuals were rounded up, right, on 24th of that's, April that's in right. 1915. That's right. Yes, and this year, for the first time uh, in Istanbul uh, during that um, commemoration, the word genocide was used formally and openly. Uh, seemed to go okay. Uh, the Turkish Human Rights Association, a very b- brave group of progressives and intellectuals. Um, uh, uh, and others, you know, uh, have issued a very 
rich and deep statement about the about the importance of commemorating what happened to the Armenians in 1915. And I think among uh, a lot of uh, progressive Turks, there's a feeling that doing this, getting over this hump, will really be good for the pursuit of genuine democracy inside of Turkey. And I think that's, a, you know, to go back to your earlier question, why does this matter uh, today, all these years later, I, I also think, you know, notwithstanding its importance for the Armenian community worldwide, I think it, it's a kind of a linchpin in Turkey's own pursuit of a more open, uh, a, a truly open democratic society, which it does not possess. And, and this is one of the grossest examples of censorship and, and repression still very active. Well, these observations are at least one step forward, right, in helping to create better relations? I think so. I think the sense that um, that there can be a wider and wider civic layering inside of Turkey, that the the violent, you know, shutdown uh, of, the, of, of all... Um, discourse and conversation and, you know, public action that has to do with the Armenian past, uh, can, uh, that, that that violent uh, repression is, is, is not uh, as severe as it used to be. And yet, at the same time, one, one also notes, having studied Turkey uh, for a while, that, you know, things come in waves. So you can have a push forward and then a push back. And, and so the process needs to keep moving, notwithstanding whatever pushbacks there might be. And it takes courageous and brave people to do that. And I certainly have great admiration for some of my uh, personal Turkish colleagues over there who have pursued this and the many, many other people who, who, who know that this is uh, important for the health of their own society. What can America do to help resolve or reconcile the situation, you think? Yeah, here I, I feel that um, I feel the U.S. has a real moral leadership role that it can play. It's been very painful to watch the uh, State Department um, instruct the Congress to table the Armenian Genocide Resolution that has come to the floor several times in the last last 15 years. Uh, and the good news is that Congress was prepared to affirm the facts of history, that what happened in 1915 to the Armenians was indeed genocide. But the State Department caved to the and there's no other word for it. It's been described this way to me by people on Capitol Hill. The hysterical uh, pressure of the Turkish government uh, demanding, cajoling, and insisting that this not be allowed to happen. And the State Department, in the end, has um, decided that it has not, it's not worth um, um, aggravating relations with, with Turkey. Now, my, my own perspective on this is that uh, we are uh, the most powerful country in the world, and I think that we have the solidity and we have the, um, uh, the strength and uh, the traditions to stand up to, to foreign governments with appalling human rights records. And um, 
and say, look, we, you know, we, we are entitled to our own opinions and our own perceptions in our country. And, and, I'm, and, and, and it's a very bad example. Uh, the, um, you know, the, the caving is a very bad example. So I, I feel that there's a lot of proper knowledge. I, I have to say I have great admiration for President Obama's going into the Turkish parliament in 2009 mm-hmm. and telling the Turkish parliament that their country must deal with the events of 1915 honestly because carrying an unresolved historical burden is too heavy a weight for any country to bear. I mean, I think that that was a really good, that was a good gesture. Um, you know, it was met, of course, with outrage on the part of the Turkish um, prime minister and president. But I think on all fronts, I think the White House uh, has to go further I think the State Department is the most important place that needs to say we could deal with a short time of Turkish disappointment, but Turkey and the U.S. are good are good allies, and we're going to forge our our relations. But this is an issue of important ethical meaning, and so forth. So I think they think that would be a big a big start. Well, it's unlikely that all sides are going to see a mutual agreement for the foreseeable future, anyway. But I want to ask, what happens to our children of tomorrow? How do we handle and manage the issues of the past for them? Right. Yeah, well, you know, never a simple issue. But my feeling, as I think about the dynamics of the memory acknowledgement commemoration um, syndromes as they evolve in various histories, my, my feeling is that the the children of legacies of you know human rights atrocities on the side of on on the perpetrator side are not are not responsible for the crimes unless they den- if they unless they deny them and that the denial continues to create a kind of complicity with the people who did indeed perpetrate them. Mm-hmm. My own feeling is, you know, as, a, as an American citizen, my own ancestors weren't in the U.S. during the time of slavery. <clears throat> so I can't say that I, I feel that my, my own personal um, cultural heritage is connected to that. But as an American citizen, you know, one who feels a great love of nation, um, I feel a sense of obligation to care about uh, that past and its uh, reverberations in the present, I, I feel that you know all of us as citizens have a call to conscience and to acknowledgement, education, and some kind of empathic engagement with grave wrongdoings that have happened in the country that you're a citizen of. So, you know, I think that's what one might might wish for. For Turkish citizens, that they that they feel a sense of conscience and and moral uh, you know engagement about the meaning of that past, and that's I think that's different than saying you did it, you're responsible, you're uh, you know you're tainted. I think you're only tainted if you collude with a with a false or denialist narrative. Well, you wrote a book called The Burning Tigress. 
the Armenian genocide and America's response. It, it went to, it became a New York uh, Times bestseller. Uh, yes. Tell us about. Well, I um, I got uh, I got very interested in the American cultural response to the Armenian crisis. Um, my training is in American culture, American studies. And uh, it was exciting for me as somebody who had written, as a, as, a, as a poet and as a memoirist who had written about the Armenian genocide past, to all of a sudden begin to examine um, the, uh, the American landscape from the 1890s into the 1920s and see what an extraordinary impact the massacres of the 1890s and the genocide of the 19-teens had on um, on Americans, and uh, I, you know, I uncovered uh, some interesting kind of lost social and cultural historical um, uh, segments uh, in in human rights and philanthropy. And uh, you know, I, one of the things I argue in in my book is that uh, when the Red Cross took their took their rescue mission to Turkey, to the hinterlands of Turkey, where the Armenians had been massacred in large numbers in the 1890s. And uh, this was the first time Americans had left the U.S. to go do relief work somewhere outside of their borders. And I began to see that the Armenian crisis, that is, from massacres on to genocide and into the 1920s, had spawned a kind of interesting international awakening mm-hmm. in the U.S., one that would be followed by other international episodes of relief and rescue. I mean, Cuba shortly followed thereafter, and and America would enter a more cosmopolitan age. But the the Armenians were at the at the source of this, and and while it's a tragic story, it's I think it's a valiant and exciting story about Americans who felt a strong call to duty and conscience. And um, also during the genocide period, I discovered the uh, very uh, courageous uh, interventions and life-risking efforts that the U.S. consuls stationed in the center and east and south of Turkey. The very life-risking things they did uh, in order to save and rescue um, thousands of people um, and provide relief and their their um, accounts are brilliantly written you know uh, mind you how well people wrote back then right. uh, brilliantly written and they they take up a, a lot in our national archives in Washington and it's so. all available in the book a lot of it is yeah okay yeah, good right. and where can we get this uh, the book uh, Amazon of course online mm-hmm. and the publisher is HarperCollins. It's a HarperCollins paperback, so easy to get. <laughs> thank thank you, you, Peter. Thank you for asking me. Thank you very much, and thank you for coming on the show and sharing your insight. Thanks. It's been great being with you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, feel free to send in your comments to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the Vip Jaswell Report, or tweet me if you dare at Vip Jaswell on Twitter. Thank you for listening, and keep your ears open for the next airing of the Vip Jaswell Report, coming soon.